Welcome to Wise Up Governance and Boards podcast, brought to you by Three Wise Owls Governance Consultants. Covering hot topics in governance, risk, latest regulatory changes, and issues keeping directors and executives awake at night. Here are your hosts, Ainsley Cunningham and Deb Anderson. Welcome to today's episode of Wise Up. Today we're joined by Catherine Morgan, who's a Senior Associate at McCulloch Robertson Lawyers. Welcome, Catherine. Hi, Catherine. Catherine is a financial services regulatory lawyer specialising in white-collar crime regulation and compliance. Catherine acts for clients from a variety of industry sectors, including mining and engineering firms, professional services firms, educational institutions and financial services providers. She advises on matters regarding anti-money laundering and counter-terrorism, AMLCTF as it's well known, international sanctions, foreign bribery, modern slavery, whistleblower protection laws and other white-collar crime issues. Catherine brings both in-house and private practice experience, having previously worked as an in-house legal counsel for the Wealth Management Business Unit at the Commonwealth Bank of Australia. Catherine's experience includes advising various clients on their obligations as existing or potential reporting entities under the AML-CTF Act and advising various listed and unlisted Australian and multinational entities in relation to addressing a range of integrity risk risks applicable to their operations, including UNSC sanctions regimes. Welcome, Catherine. Thanks, guys. It's good to be here. So tell us a little bit about your background and um, your role at McCulloch-Robertson. Sure. Um, so- as Deb sort of mentioned, um, I was previously at the Commonwealth Bank of Australia working as an in-house counsel, and that's probably where I kind of fell in love with um, you know, a culture of compliance and, and good corporate governance and sort of understanding how you can build a business that does the right thing by design. Um, also fell in love with financial services law as well. Not that many people ever say that, but um, as a subject matter. And because being a highly regulated industry um, and all of our clients have a multitude of um, regulators sort of on their backs at all times. Um, It was a really sort of interesting intersection. First of all, I sort of took on AML-CTF and then as other changes have come through, particularly sort of modern slavery and the new whistleblower protection laws, it's kind of fallen in with AML-CTF as well and and before I, before I knew it, I was the sort of the go-to person at McCulloch's um, for a lot of those issues and um, have been there for about three and a half years now. So sort of gave up the in-house back into private practice rather than the other way around. Now here you are. And now here I am. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit about um, the work that you do in terms of AML and CTF. So there's kind of three main sectors that um, are regulated under AML-CTF laws in Australia. Um, They came into effect in 2007. It was um, kind of off the back of 9-11, actually, that a lot of sweeping changes worldwide came through in relation to AML-CTF, and particularly the counter-terrorism financing aspect of that. Um, And Australia was uh, quite late to join, um, but there was a lot of pressure for them to sort of, um, for us to step up our game and try and comply. Um, we're a member of FATF as well, which was a big part of that as well. Um, but financial services sector is one of the main three ones, so most of my, my main clients are, are regulated under that act, but there's also bullion, so gold trading um, and gambling as well. So in terms of um, 
modern slavery reporting. How has that um, played out with the changes recently? Look, it's really interesting, actually. So obviously it came into effect um, in 2019, so it's, it's not necessarily new law now, but the first set of reporting requirements are now coming up. Um, they have all been pushed back by three months due to COVID, like most regulators. Um, they are trying to help people comply with their obligations because everything's kind of up in the air at the moment. Um, but it's it's been a slow burn, um, and that's not surprising because it's fairly new legislation. And not a lot of countries have modern slavery laws in effect yet. So the UK brought theirs in in 2015, and Australia's um, Federal Act does sort of draw quite heavily on that um, sort of framework. Um, but I, I'd say probably the last three months there's been... Um, a, a significant increase in the momentum um, and people sort of asking questions and starting to put together their frameworks um, in the modern slavery space. There there was an initial flurry when the Act first passed, um, but I would say there's a lot more coming through now, which is actually quite interesting. So there's a reasonably high threshold, isn't there, in terms of, um, is it $100 million in annual turnover? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that's consolidated revenue. So if you've got um, a sort of corporate structure, you would have to look at all of the revenue for any companies sitting underneath your sort of head company in Australia. Um, so it's not, um, in terms of, sorry, let me start that one again. Um, in terms of having to report as a mandatory requirement, that is the threshold, but there is the option as well of voluntarily opting in. And we have had a couple of clients who have wanted to do that. Um, I think because reputationally, um, and given that uh, there's a sort of, trend um, for a lot of companies to sort of be um, to comply with environmental standards um, transparency in their supply chains and that sort of I guess clean movement as well it's it's a good look if you're complying with the act even if you don't have to. So from a practical perspective you've got to look at your whole supply chain and see where um, all those goods or services are coming from. From a practical perspective how do you go about doing that? Well, I I think it's important to note that it's not saying that you have to look at your supply chains and be absolutely certain that there is no modern slavery in your supply chains because, quite frankly, that is impossible. Um, Anyone that has a smartphone has benefited in some way, shape or form from modern slavery, unfortunately. But what it is about doing is trying to create as much transparency as possible given the nature of your business, given the types of um, goods and services that you're providing and where possible trying to remove um, any obvious or any instances of modern slavery. So it it really needs to be looked at on a case-by-case basis. So if, for example, um, you're manufacturing technology equipment and you're getting a lot of raw materials from a country that's a vulnerable jurisdiction the kind of sort of checks and balances and the due diligence that you're going to put in place for those suppliers is going to be very different for um, a small accounting business that employs five people and might occasionally buy some merchandise from China. Um, you know, that both require due diligence and both would require checks. And obviously the latter business is unlikely to be captured by the mandatory criteria and having to report, but it's the kind of um, framework that any business can and probably should implement. 
Yeah, it's probably a lot easier for the larger manufacturing type of um, organisations who are already probably familiar with, um, you know, partnering with suppliers that meet ISO standards and they have those sort of um, third-party surprise audits and all that sort of stuff that kind of probably helps strengthen that element already. You're absolutely right. And and that's probably why the threshold is, in fact, so high. No, no one's saying that you, you know, you absolutely have to do this, but at that point, point that's a sufficiently big business that you do have that that sort of organizational um, capability to start putting steps in place and start really asking questions of suppliers and also that kind of information asymmetry when you're entering into supplier agreements like if you're a company or a business that big you actually carry a lot more weight when you're entering into that contract and you can ask those questions of your supplier saying like where are you getting this from you know can you warrant you know can you provide a warranty to us that you're not engaging in any sort of slavery like practices Mm. as opposed to going to office works where you get your stationery and asking them (laughs) exactly like i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure the checkout person at at office works is not going to answer those questions for you (laughs) no definitely not so how do you get around those types of things like um obviously there are constraints where um you sort of reach the end of the line where you can sort of I guess have that kind of um inquiry how do you get around um reporting in on that basis well you you may not be able to take it further and Mm. in, in that instance that's what you say you say you know these are the things that we did you know in this reporting period to try and increase the transparency in our um, supply chains and this is how many levels we took it down like you know if you're buying IT equipment you're not going to sort of request that you have a report of where the lithium in your battery and your laptop came from like that's not necessarily appropriate and for most people <laughs> but if you are the company that makes lithium-ion batteries you probably would yes want to um, undertake those checks with your supplier so it's like I said it, it is sort of this relative concept um Mm. and you would look at it on a case-by-case basis and be like well this is appropriate for our business and this is why we think it's appropriate um and there is really good um online resources and guidance around what that could potentially look like for your business that's really good practical tips what are some of the sort of the for our listeners what are some of the online content and the the websites that they can go to to get some assistance with that so the department of home affairs who is responsible for administering the modern slavery act they've actually released um, a reporting guide um oh sorry guidance for reporting entities um and it's an incredibly detailed document it's really well put together and it actually has annexes with a whole bunch of resources um for different sectors um and different sort of supply like goods and services and things that are inherently high risk. So it's the kind of thing that you can sort of look through and say, well, actually, we sort of touch on all of these sectors and maybe we would want to have more robust due diligence processes for these particular things. So it helps give a bit of context around um, what you can and should be doing. Um, More broadly, Anti-Slavery Australia is a really great organisation that puts a lot of what is going on in perspective. Um, I found it quite helpful when I first started learning about modern slavery because I think when you think of modern slavery, you have this very specific mental image and it, it can be a bit confusing because you think, it's like, slavery, slavery doesn't exist. Um, and unfortunately it does and it, it, I think it, it helps you understand why you would want to be complying with the Act, mm. um, especially because at the moment there's no um, repercussions or penalties if you don't comply under the Federal Act. But... Yeah, it, it really helps you understand why you should be complying with it. 
So what's the um, first reporting date if you've got a 30 June year end? Uh, so for 30 June year end, it was originally the end of the year. So normally it's a six-month deadline. So mm-hmm. um, your financial year finishes, six months later you report. But um, as I mentioned earlier, that's been extended by three months. So you're now looking at the 31st of March. March. Um, and then for calendar years, um, I believe it's the end of the year now. And then for foreign years... No, foreign news, it must be the end of the year. Sorry. Yeah, that's okay. (laughs) I've kind of put you on the spot with that one. Sorry, Catherine. (laughs) So in terms of um, the whistleblower protection laws that um, were sort of strengthened earlier this year, how have you found those um, have been playing out for some of your clients? Or Interestingly, also a slow burn, which was probably more surprising given there is now a penalty if you are required to have a compliant policy and you don't have one Um, and particularly as well the fact that it does provide a level of benefit for the company itself having a compliant whistleblower policy in place so the laws actually came into effect um, as a start of um, sorry the middle of last year and then the requirement to have a policy had a delayed period and that came into effect at the start of this year Um, But we were sort of encouraging clients as much as possible to put something in place well before the deadline just because it's there for their protection as well and and sort of at least having a think about what their internal processes and procedures were going to look like and how they were going to manage, um, you know, any disclosures that were made under the new framework given it had been expanded so significantly. Um, But we had a very big flurry in December with people rushing to try and get something in place for first of um, the 1st of January. And interestingly, we, we've also had this sort of second second wave, which is a bit of a triggering statement at the moment, isn't it? But um, a second wave of whistleblower policy reviews probably in the last kind of three months. Um, I think people were sort of rushing to get something in place for the 1st of Jan, and now they're sort of reviewing how well that works and whether it's really appropriate for their business and sort of tailoring it a bit more to be more effective for their business. I think it's one of the challenges when, like you say, they're doing it in a hurry is um, whether they're actually implementing it in training rather than just doing a sort of set and forget, we've done that, tick the box yeah, my, and, mentality. And it is not a policy that you can do that with. Um, there are quite a lot of clients, um, again, around that December mark who just wanted, like, they're like, can you just give us a standard policy? I'm like, that doesn't really exist. The whole point of this legislation is that it really needs to be something that's quite adaptable, quite flexible. It works for your business. It works with your reporting lines. Um, and it's something that people can and will comply with because the, you know, the penalties are huge under it. It's a really important area of law. And it's a really messy area of law as well. Um, I think even as a lawyer, you sort of you read the legislation and you read the sort of the regulatory guidance that's come out and you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And if you've ever spoken to anyone who's actually had to you know, blow the whistle on their business or sort of speak up about something that they saw that was going on that, um, that was inappropriate at their business, it's incredibly emotionally stressful. It, it often ends their career, um, at least at that business, but often, in, particularly in Australia where everyone kind of knows everyone in certain circles, it, it it can be completely career-ending and just the the long-term detrimental effects of um, of being victimised or being pushed out of something because you've raised concerns, it's, it's really horrible. Yeah, so it's put there to try and protect that, but us. Yeah, 
exactly. Whether or not that has the effect that it should, what just I guess time will tell. Yeah, and I think it's the first step towards building this sort of culture of compliance where you, because as a business, like you want people to be able to speak up if something's going wrong. And you um, want them to be able to speak up in a trusted environment before they blow the whistle externally. Well, exactly. And particularly under this new legislation with um, the ability for people to make public interest or emergency disclosures, you def- like you said, you definitely want them to come to you and raise those concerns before it ends up on the front page of the AFR, for example. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and I guess too it helps probably if you've got like an independent third party that's doing those reviews rather than somebody internally because it gives a bit more... Yeah, and credibility to it. It depends on the size of the business, but I think where you can use an external sort of disclosure hotline or service, and there's heaps of them now. Um, it's a burgeoning area for people. Um, it's a really good way to do that because you can do it anonymously, and I think people will often speak a bit more freely if they feel like they're removed from the situation. That being said, um, I went to a talk back when you could actually go to talks in person. <laughs> um, it was towards the end of last year, and they were talking, I think it was a Transparency International one, and they were talking about whistleblowing. Um, and quite interestingly, they said that with the external disclosure hotlines, more often than not, they call rather than email. And more often than not, after they've sort of spoken to the person on the ex- um, external hotline, they actually end up feeling quite empowered to go back to the business and speak directly to them. So they actually end up making, more often than not, a non-anonymous disclosure inside the business, which I think is quite wow. interesting as well. Um, yeah. So, That's yeah. not an expected um, response, is it? No, um, but it, it's not right for everyone. I think for sort of ASX-listed companies or where you've got multiple sort of geographical locations as well, that can be a better option. But obviously, if you're um, a small, tightly-held business that is still a large proprietary company... It, it may not be necessary or appropriate. And then for a lot of our financial services clients, that's the case. Um, so they're captured because either um, they're a large proprietary company, um, but they're sort of this office of five people who manage investments and there's absolutely no need to have a separate hotline for that. So... Going back to financial services and the uh, Royal Commission, (laughs) (laughs) how are the uh, implementation of the recommendations out at the Hain Royal Commission progressing? Where are we at? Well, I think we would have got further if, again, not for COVID, (laughs) like everything else this year. Um, But we're starting to see some of the changes coming through. Um, The product intervention power um, is um, is through now um, and we're starting to see ASIC like their muscles a little bit on that, which is a really interesting space. Um, the design and distribution obligations that were meant to have commenced have, have been pushed out a little bit as well. Um, but we haven't seen too much more coming out of um, the recommendations that will eventually be implemented yet. Um, I think ASIC's focused, um, despite last year being quite firm about their why not litigate approach, um, they have brought that back a bit in light of COVID and their um, their main kind of focus, um, it, it, it seems to me anyway, is just making sure that people um, or, or the regulated entities are complying with, um, with the law as, as best they can given the circumstances and giving a bit of flexibility around what that necessarily needs to look like. 
um, a big one for them has been liquidity for managed investment schemes or registered managed investment schemes, particularly um, given the economic impacts of COVID um, back in sort of 2007 and 2008 during the GFC. Um, a lot of mortgage schemes and a lot of other sort of um, registered schemes sort of did become illiquid and made, made things very difficult for people to get the money out and or otherwise collapsed. Um, so I'm sure they don't really want to see a repeat of that. So they've, you know, they've been sending lots of letters out going just hey, just remember your financial requirements. <laughs> um, um, so that's been one space. But, you know, things are starting to pick up again, I think, as well. The other issue as well is, like, a lot of um, ASIC offices are actually in regional Victoria, which has presented a new sort of dimension um, mm. for, for compliance as well. Um, someone in our team had to call ASIC the other day, and the call centre is also in regional Victoria, and um, they have to wear face coverings. And so there's like this recorded message when you're on the hold to ASIC going like, by the way, like all of our staff are required to wear face covering. So if you can't really hear them, maybe try sending us an email. Oh, wow. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. How challenging for them. I know. But to be fair, I could actually um, hear, hear <laughs> them fine, um, which was good. But it was just, yeah, it was this very surreal kind of. Yes, that's weird, isn't it? So I think, you know, ASIC's cutting regulated entities a little bit of slack we should probably be cutting ASIC a little bit of slack yeah absolutely so in terms of I guess um the practicalities for financial services clients how um are they finding the implementation of some of these changes and where can they go to um I guess get some help in terms of um implementing them um so product Intervention power, there's obviously nothing for them to do. That's more a power that ASIC has if um, they don't like or have to take issue um, with a particular product or service. Um, you know, it is a relatively high threshold. There has to be this sort of significant risk of consumer detriment. Um, so pretty much so far, they've only really stepped in on um, sort of payday lenders that have really sort of aggressive practices um, and as well as sort of binary option trading apps, um, which... In, I don't know, in my opinion, is kind of fair enough. Um, I, I, they're not necessarily appropriate for the kind of people that they are targeting. Um, with the design and distribution obligations, that will sort of be coming in next year now. Um, but obviously very happy to have a chat with anyone um, who wants to know more about that. Um, we'll probably be releasing some sort of written guidance around what that's going to look like to and what you need to do. Um, it's not really clear how it's going to work yet because it's, it's very new. It's not really like anything we've done in Australia before and there's not really a comparable um, sort of regime in any other countries as well. So we'll have to sort of wait and see on that one. <laughs> Australia will be the poster child for that by the looks of it. Oh, we, we do love regulation here, I'll tell you what. <laughs> That's the thing with financial services, so much regulation and you know, modern slavery is going to impact some of those larger companies as well. So it's just another, just layers and layers, isn't it? Yeah, although I think trying to convince professional firms of the importance of modern slavery is not an easy sell. <laughs> um, they're like, I work in an office. Like, yeah, why why do I need to think about this? Yeah. Like, I think... Um, sort of construction and mining have probably been the most receptive to it because I think that they often have mines in other countries as well and they they get it a lot more but um yeah professional services firms definitely not because <laughs> I think I was looking at some stats and I think it's like 69 percent of the modern slavery issues are out of um Southeast Asia yeah yeah um, and Australia doesn't have a lot 
actually in Australia. I think like last year it was something like 2,000 cases, which to be fair is still a lot more than I thought would be the case. Um, so a lot of offshoring um, issues are yeah. a big one. But if you, if you buy merchandise, if you buy anything you buy that's from a vulnerable jurisdiction probably needs to look, be looked into. Yeah, definitely. So in terms of the bribery and corruption laws, have you seen a bit of a shift in um, companies adopting anti-bribery and anti-corruption policies that sort of tie in with the whistleblower policy and codes of conduct? Um, not too much. I, th- I think ASX listed companies do tend to have one um, because it's in the guidelines to have one. Um, they're probably not as robust as they need to be. It really depends if, if you are operating cross-border um, because most um, most bribery and corruption policies do tend to relate more to the sort of foreign bribery. Um, but they should cover domestic issues as well because that's also an offence. Um, I think uh, most people were more preoccupied with just getting a whistleblower policy in place rather than thinking about necessarily how it interacts with their existing policies or frameworks. Um, but ideally, they should all talk to each other. Um, I think as well, there were some proposed changes that were hopefully going to come through this year, which, once again, push back, probably won't be this year now. Um, so I know there are a few businesses that were sort of waiting for that to happen and then kind of giving everything a big overhaul. But whether or not it's, it's appropriate to keep waiting on that, maybe not given it could be a little while before they come through now. Yeah, absolutely. And with, just going back to the AML CTF, are you finding that clients are making um, annual, doing annual reviews of those policies? Yeah, so you do have um, an annual compliance report that you're required to submit to ASIC. In terms of actually reviewing your um, AML CTF program, it's not necessary that you do it every year, maybe I mean, the big banks and other really big financial institutions probably should, but, I mean, for most sort of small to moderate-sized financial services providers, every sort of three or four years for a complete review of your program is usually sufficient. Um, That being said, if your distribution channels or your products change, you should always, or even who you're targeting as um, clients change as well, you should probably look at making sure that your program is up-to-date and accurately reflects the sort of the amount of risk that you're taking on. Um, a few clients have adopted, um, actually made some changes to their programs to reflect some of the changes to the KYC obligations um, in light of COVID. So Austrac basically said, look, normally very stringent, you know, get certified copies of things, um, having two forms of documentation. And because of COVID and the fact that, that that's often not possible to do that, they've said, look, if you need to get a photocopy and, and then get the, the original certified copy after this is all finished, or if you want to have a, a Zoom call with your client and they hold up their ID and say, look, it's me, then, you know, under the circumstances, that's probably fine, which I think is quite interesting. And, and I actually hope it's something that will stick around even after the end of COVID, because I think as particularly as distribution channels move online a lot more, even for financial services, it's... It's quite cumbersome yeah. to have to send, you know, paper copies of things in, and there's plenty of really effective digital ways to verify someone's identity now. So, yeah, absolutely, and there's nothing space. more frustrating than when you finally do it and send it off, and then you wait for a response, and then they say, 
Oh, it never turned up. <laughs> You're like, oh, no. <laughs> or it wasn't properly certified. Yeah. We didn't use the right wording. Dad all over again. <laughs> Fortunately, that's never happened to me, which is a relief because as a lawyer, I'd be very concerned if I couldn't get my documents certified properly. <laughs> For sure. So in terms of, um, I guess, the matters that relate to UNSC sanctions regimes and some of those integrity risks that apply to certain multinationals, what, um, what are you seeing happening in that space? It's a pretty niche area, um, so it's generally only going to crop up if uh, you are operating in very high-risk jurisdictions um, for which sanctions have been applied, um, and it also relates to the kinds of goods or services that you could potentially be providing to people in those jurisdictions. So it's definitely not um, you know, things that I look at every day, <laughs> um, which is probably a good thing that people aren't trying to do it every day, but um, it does come up occasionally and it's a very sort of interesting space to sort of work in from time to time. Um, it's yeah, as a as a corporate lawyer in Brisbane, you just don't really think about some of those <laughs> some of those issues um, or what could potentially be going on in the Congo um, or having to sort of download the the list from DFAT of the the names and passport numbers of you know international criminals. Um, but yeah, not not a lot moving in that space. It's it's just something that you sort of have to be aware of. If, I guess if you're working in the AMLCTF space as well from time to time. Absolutely. Those defat lists are always interesting reading, aren't they? Yeah, just <laughs> whole other world. <laughs> and I guess um, if anyone who is regulated and anyone from the, that, um, that list ever crops up on your, uh, your customer base, probably be a little bit concerned. <laughs> exactly. So in, in terms of um, white crime, what sort of challenges are you dealing with at the moment? Um, I don't work on the litigation side. Um, our fab litigation team actually deals with that for us but um my I guess I fit into more of the sort of front-end compliance um space so before before litigation is required and hopefully never required um but I think in that space the the big ones at the moment um is around whistleblower protection um and AML CTF um Oztrack have bigger teeth these days um particularly post with all the litigation going on with the banks as well, it's it's the first sort of significant, um, other than the Tabcorp case, to really come out of the legislation in Australia. So they're two big spaces that we're seeing a lot of um, movement and activity. And I think as well, the last sort of six months, um, with a lot of people sort of working from home and having you know, a bit more time on their hands, we are sort of starting to see those sort of compliance overhauls where people are sitting down and going, okay, like... You know, do our internal policies and procedures actually work for our business? Do they cover what we're doing? Um, you know, are we going to get in trouble for some of the things we're doing and, and how can we be compliant going forward? As well as, I guess, where they sort of do these reviews, realise that there are significant issues with their compliance frameworks and potentially the kind of things where they might actually need to let the regu- like their various regulators know that they're perhaps not complying and, and sort of set out a framework for how they can comply going forward. So I've got a couple of matters at the moment where it's been writing, sorry, regulator letters <laughs> effectively going, yeah. this is what we've, like, we've done this review. These are the five issues that we've identified and they're the reasons we haven't been complying. This is how we propose to fix it. This is what we're going to do going forward and, and sort of, and more of, um, you know, depending on the circumstances that can often be enough. Um, I think people are afraid of regulators and that's fair enough but 
quite often if you can engage early and give them sort of a framework for how you're going, you know, of, of what you're going to do to fix the issues, they can be quite receptive to them. Yeah. Better to be proactive. Totally. <laughs> Better than getting caught and then going, oh, yeah, that, uh, that thing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think having that open, honest, trusted relationship with your regulator on a regular basis is, um, you know, proving more a uh, model going forward. Yeah. Like, you know, they are... They are enforcement, but they are sort of oversight and supervision and, like, you know, they're there to help you as much as they are to get the big stick out if it needs to come out. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. And I think, too, a lot of the challenges for, you know, large insurance firms and banks has been there's so many changes to regulation over time, Um, you know, a lot of APRA requirements, a lot of the bear regime stuff, um, the Basel II standards, all of those types of things that, and the Royal Commission and each time that these things happen, they just, um, you know, fill the gap with a siloed approach and then more often than not, um, a lot of those frameworks are not cohesive throughout the organisation. Absolutely, Yeah. Um, and, and that was Haynes' big message in the Royal Commission. He's like, he's like, we don't need more laws. We just need laws that people can actually comply with. Like, you know, even to get a financial services license in Australia, like, there's no way you can go that will tell you what license you need. Like, you, you pretty much, unless you sort of want to sit and read through three several hundred page regulatory guides, get out your corporations act, get out your corporations regulations, and try and figure it out. Like, that's, and even then, it's actually not in the law. It's yeah. Not, and it's not really clear. So, you know, we often do advices for people going, well, and it, it takes us, you know, it takes us often a couple of days to figure it out going, well, this is what license you need and this is what, these are what authorizations you're going to need. And here's an 11 page document on all of the things that you're going to have to comply with. And then people wonder why why fintech is not taking off as quickly as it should in Australia. Yeah. That's yeah. pretty much it. And have you found that there's probably... Um, potentially a consolidation in that space, like a lot of the one and two man band AFSLs out there that might realise that regulatory compliance is just becoming so cumbersome and expensive that they just can't um, keep up with all of the changes? It kind of depends on what they have a licence for. Um, we've definitely seen some of the smaller providers pull out of the market as well as smaller foreign providers pull out of the market um, off the back of the new, um, not so much new now, but the industry funding model. Um, so for a financial services provider, you, um, your funding comes down to what authorisations you have on your licence and some of them are sort of flat levies um, of you know a few thousand dollars and some of them will be graduated. But with some of the flat levies, they, they are quite hefty and for, um, for some of these businesses and they've, they've got this licence and they're not really um, you know positively trading it, it's just the actual cost of having their licence is too much. Like they can't afford it, so they, they pull out of the market. Absolutely. Well, I think that's about all we have time for today, Catherine. So before we leave, do you have anything that you want to leave our listeners with, sort of the top three tips um, as a financial services lawyer? Um, I'll, I'll try and keep it broad, but um, I suppose if you've got a bit of extra time for COVID, now is, now is the time to look at your compliance frameworks, figure out what works for you, what doesn't work for you, what you're missing. Um, and and if you are missing anything, um, definitely look at putting something in place, especially whistleblower policy. Um, you know, check out Any Slavery Australia. I think it's a really interesting resource. Um, and I would definitely encourage people, if even if they aren't required to report, 
they might actually want to put a framework in place anyway because it's, um, it's good governance and it's a good thing to do. Well, thank you so much, Catherine, for joining us today. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, guys. That's all for today. Until next time, happy podcasting. And remember, if you're enjoying the show, check out our other episodes and all things governance at www.threewiseowls.com.au.